From the return of the monocle to the last waterbed salesman, Alan Salkin has written about it all. His most recent book is From Scratch, Inside the Food Network, Big Personalities, High Drama, The Extraordinary Behind-the-Scenes Story. I had a chance to speak with Alan about the book and his time at NYU. I was basically trying to make it as a uh, poet and uh, zine short story writer when I took a journalism writing class at UCLA sometime in the summer of the early 90s. And um, I had been really drifting around, traveling around with a backpack, um, not so sure what I wanted to do with myself. And this journalism class that I'd taken was great because I got to write about um, palm readers and Venice Beach and a uh, garlic festival in the parking lot of the Federal Building at UCLA. And I got published. Um, an ex-girlfriend of mine who was working at UCLA that summer saw it. I got to eat food for free. Um, and so I said, well, this journalism racket is great. You know, it, free food impresses women. <laughs> so I uh, spent some time writing up an application to go to journalism school at the Novel Cafe in Santa Monica, I still remember. <laughs> and um, by that time, I had spent so much time writing fiction and stuff that my prose was pretty good. And um, I was such a pushy guy that I was you know, good at asking people questions. So my 300-word essay, because for some reason the journalism department just used the same entry um, application as every other department, even though I would say they should have had a much more comprehensive writing example. Maybe they do now, I don't know. But so I wrote this great 300-word essay. I still remember the first line, which was, I am interested in everything. And it was so good, or something, that Bill Sarin, who was then in charge of the journalism department, William Sarin, um, who had been a labor reporter for the New York Times, I remember called me, I think called my father, um, and told me they were giving me basically a free ride, or at least you know $25,000 deal for the first year, um, which was great for me because it covered you know everything pretty much back then you could actually get an apartment in the East Village for about seven fifty a month, so it was great. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I was thrilled to go to NYU. I was not somebody who knew people in the journalism game. My father was a rubber ducky salesman, basically, a baby toy importer and salesman. My mom was in real estate. We lived in California, even though I'd been born in New York. And so for me, coming here to NYU and meeting professionals who had done this business um, who knew their way around, I just was all ears immediately and just knew I could do it. And I was just, you know, also a few years older than the other students, so absolutely thrilled to hear what was being talked about. Nancy Hass was a professor of mine who um, was a freelancer for the New York Times style section also, which I still write for now, and she helped me make that connection. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, to wrap up the NYU part of it, Jane Stone, who's still a professor in the department, um, taught a investigative reporting class and that class was really valuable and I remember I wrote an article with two other students about the cracks in the sidewalks and how the city was spending 42 million dollars a year paying off lawsuits mm -hmm. for people who tripped and that story became a front page article in the New York Post mm -hmm. um, out of that and I had had an internship at the Post 
And because I had that story from NYU, that basically ended up helping me get a job at the Post, which really launched my career and enabled me to work in New York City, which sort of set me on the course that eventually led to the Food Network book. <laughs> and before we get to the Food Network book, could you just talk about some of the pieces you've written that you're really proud of, most proud of? I would say one of the best articles I wrote was um, when I ended up at the New York Times a few years later, I wrote an article about men over 40 in summer share houses in the Hamptons. Um, and it was just one of those things that you, know, you hear songwriters talk about the easy songs, they just come out and they're a hit, and that was just, it was like a hit song. I still remember a line from there um, about this guy who was kind of pathetic and talking about, and he was in a band, um, he played guitar or something, and he was talking about his neighbor on the same street in the Hamptons, and that the neighbor neighbors didn't mind all the noise, and he said, yeah, this person's never there, and McCartney's never around, he said, referring to Paul McCartney, who is also in a band. I love that line. But, you know, that was a silly, funny story. And I did a great story for the New York Post, I still remember, about a little girl who'd been um, basically separated from her adoptive mother uh, by some immigration snafu, and Charles Schumer, who was then uh, just a representative, not the senator yet, got involved because of the article I wrote and eventually we all flew down to Jamaica basically and sort of rescued this little girl and led to this mother and daughter reunion and it was it just showed some of the good that a newspaper can do so you know sometimes I still think about that and my most famous story is probably um, not the monocle piece that I just wrote <laughs> uh, although it was fun um, was about Annie Leibovitz, the photographer, and her financial problems. And that was a front-page New York Times story that got all kinds of attention and, um, you know, people still talk about. Mm -hmm. And you have written a lot of food-related pieces also, uh, including the Ferran Adria piece. Is that sort of where your interest in writing this book stems from? Or how, how did you decide you wanted to write this book? Well, I think food became hot as a topic. You know, as a journalist, you just end up, you know, writing about what's at the top of the cultural interest at any given time. And so I would say in the 70s and 80s, everyone was writing inevitably about rock and roll music um, uh, and other forms of pop music. And then as food became more of a central interest for everybody, I, as a mostly as a cultural and trend reporter, just you know picked up the scent of the zeitgeist and did some stories about this new phenomenon in 2006 called the food blogger. Mm -hmm. And you know we shot it. We shot a photo of all these people who were young food bloggers, um, most of whom have now gone on to be big businessmen. The guys who started Eater were in that photo. Uh, Danielle Freeman from Restaurant Girl. Josh Ozersky, who was just named the editor or the, the, the food writer at large for Esquire was in that photo. And we shot it at this new restaurant called um, Momofuku, you know, being served by this chef named David Chang, who's now famous obviously himself. So I got into it because of that story. I wrote a story about, um, yes, Ferran, Adria, and um, and then Jose Andres basically came to my apartment, the great Spanish chefs, and cooked me lunch. Um, and there was one about these guys, young guys starting liquor brands. And this led to um, a call from a publicist for Lee Schrager, not related to Ian Schrager, a guy who lives in Florida mostly, 
Miami who runs the South Beach Food and Wine Festival. Mm -hmm. And they said, um, you know, you got to write about this guy. He, it's, everyone comes down there. He's the, it's the Sundance Film Festival of the food media industry. And, of course, my most important question about this food festival in Miami, um, me living in New York at this point, was, well, when is it? <laughs> and since it was in February, I was interested. I pitched it to my editor at the Times, and he agreed to let me go. And the reason that they even called me was because of all those other articles about food culture that I'd written. I'm not a food, although I've written a few um, restaurant reviews for Time Out over the years, and I've now been exposed to so much food that I know my way around a bit. I'm more about the characters and the media. I'm not really a food writer. I've never written a recipe um, for a newspaper or anything, even though I'm a pretty good cook, they say. Um, so down in South Beach, when I went in 2008, I was absolutely amazed when I saw all the hullabaloo around chefs that they had talent agents and bodyguards and handlers. And this was the year that Emeril had just sold, Emeril Lagasse had sold his businesses to Martha Stewart for $50 million, $50 million. Um, and so, you know, it just had heat and it had you know, fame and celebrity and women were throwing themselves at these chefs and people were paying $250 to look at Rachel Ray from 100 yards away, eat a hamburger. And so when I left the Times about a year later, a um, year and a half later, I realized that this was really a great priority for me to write about how this all happened and that I was in a position to write about it because of the other writing I'd done because I had done a piece on the uh, cooking channel which was the spinoff from Food Network. I'd written about John Rosen who is the talent agent to Bobby Flay and Giada and uh, Rachel Ray. Um, and I also, by the way, early on in journalism picked up the idea that I don't need to write about the Kennedys World War II, or the Mafia. Mm -hmm. There's other people doing that. I'd rather write about virgin territory, um, something I can add to, and, and I think the Food Network story is that. It's really interesting to read because I had never really thought about the history of the network or really thought about, you know, you see these personalities and you figure they're so natural, this is how they are. Reading your book, you really realize that there's a formula and there's people, co they're coached, and um, can you maybe talk about one of the stories in the book or something that really shocked you or, or something that really stood out when you did your research? Well, first of all, the Food Network, when it started, was rinky-dink and cheap. Um, in fact, it's interesting. The Food Network basically started right when I started at NYU. It was almost simultaneous. Um, it's funny to think about what New York was like when the Food Network was starting back in, you know, 93, 94. Um, and a lot of those chefs who are now household names, like Mario Batali and Emeril Lagasse, were awful on television at first. And they got a lot of time to get better because the network was so cheap. And there was a guy and his wife, Lou Eckes and Lisa Eckes, in um, western Massachusetts, had this sort of um, food PR agency that became a food TV training ground. And you would go up there, pay them like three grand, and they would uh, train you how to cook and talk at the same time and look in the camera. Um, one person who they trained was Ming Tsai, mm -hmm. Chef Ming Tsai, who, to get him at ease, basically they pasted a photo of his new little puppy on the camera and said, just talk to your puppy. <laughs> uh, in the case of Bobby Flay, who's, by the way, whose restaurant um, 
right now is opening a new restaurant. His biggest effort to date, Gato, um, opening literally this week in uh, in NoHo, right right here, and. Um, his restaurant Mesa Grill opened the day of the Gulf War in 1991. I mean, people, that was only one of the two good restaurants that opened that year. So New York was really a fertile place to do it. And when Bobby went up for training at the Lueckes place, um, they told Bobby to talk to the camera as if it was something that he was concerned with, namely pretend it's a woman you're trying to seduce. Um, but, you know, another great, there's so many great stories about people who were bad on camera at first. I mean, Ina Garten, the Barefoot Contessa, you know, when they first sent a camera crew to her house, this was an effort by Martha Stewart to get um, Ina involved in television. Ina cut her finger terribly on a mandolin. Um, she, they thought they were going to tape like seven shows in two weeks. They ended up taping a show and a half. Um, they tramped mud, the crew, all over her carpets. Her septic system backed up because she insisted on taping in her own house, which mm -hmm. eventually is what it became. But um, when it was time for the crew to leave, she there was a champagne toast, and she said, thank you very much, now get the hell out of my house. She was nice enough to give them all autographed copies of her first cookbook, and then she sent Martha Stewart's company a bill for the cookbooks. <laughs> and, of course, Martha was so disturbed by the results and also disturbed by the fact that Another cook was, um, female cook, was using mm -hmm. Fiesta Ware, which was a dinnerware that Martha had also used at certain points in her cooking segments, that Martha ordered all of Ina Garten's tapes destroyed. And it wasn't until a year later that they really figured out um, how to shoot her show so that it would be more cinematic and they would shoot it just with one camera um, and a smaller crew and they could do multiple takes so you could see her hands moving and then you start getting that sort of inner dialogue that she can do as a voiceover. Mm -hmm. Oh, Jeffrey's gonna love this <laughs> and it's so delicious and look at it glisten and you know, which I, I think people connect to because mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, when I cook I have that internal, oh, this looks good. Right. I don't exactly sound like Ina Garten in my own head, <laughs> but, but you know, we all look a little bit more like Ina Garten than we do look like Giada De Laurentiis, mm -hmm. if I may say. But, you know, I do think it's important to, and interesting to understand the background of all of these people. There's always a backstory. There's something that makes them want to cook on TV. Sometimes it's, and oftentimes, it's because they come from broken homes and crazy situations themselves. I mean, chefs, first of all, are an adrenaline-addicted lot. But secondly... There's something about wanting to put something beautiful on the table and show everybody, look how beautiful this is, that I think is especially important in a kind of dysfunctional home. Mm -hmm. You know, when everything else is going to chaos and, and you can just say, no, look, 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 this is, let's all come to the table and be calm. And it, it's almost an act of desperation mm -hmm. for some of them. And I think that, that intensity of wanting to do it is what drives somebody to get on television and, and makes them want to connect with a viewer so badly and makes them great television stars. There's nothing about being an actor or a television uh, personality that attracts a necessarily healthy person. Mm -hmm. But but it doesn't mean they're not great on TV. Right. And, and what what is your definition of a Food Network star? Somebody you, you when you see their face you don't change the channel. You can love them or you can hate them, but you got to watch them. And I think it's interesting that, look at Guy Fieri. Many people hate him. 
but you know who he is. You know, his childhood heroes, Elvis and Evil Knievel, Great American Showman. That's a Food Network star. You know, there's a lot of people who have shows on there, and I run through some of them in the book, but a lot of people who we've forgotten. Sarah Moulton was a big uh, personality on the network for a decade, and people do remember her. And there's something a little bit surly and, you know... Um, there's a conflict sort of in Sarah Moulton, a kind of sweet face but a kind of hard edge underneath that I think makes her memorable but at the same time allowed her to be kind of disposable because she wasn't quite as dynamic mm-hmm. and desperate as somebody like, uh, you know, say Sandra Lee, who really is just like a real like pretty little conflict of almost hysterical, you know, tablescaping and planning to the point where you know people don't necessarily know why they like this i don't think the average food network viewer understands why they're attracted to these people mm-hmm. they just know i want to watch them and you know i guess it's up to writers like me to explain to you why you want to watch mm-hmm. them and, and for you what projects are you working on now do you have anything coming up do you have another book that you'd like to write i've got so many things i want to do and that's my problem right now honestly i am it was very hard to set aside time and what took three years to write this book. Mm-hmm. And you really start to understand what it takes to get something like that done. You know, to tell a 20-year history of a giant media company, it was like giving birth to a sideways watermelon. And um, I had to start saying no to a lot of things. I had to isolate myself. Um, you know, I'm not saying I'm Philip Roth, but you know, just reading Philip Roth now talk about what he went through all, for all those decades of writing and how he was able to do it because he had almost no regard for his own happiness. Mm -hmm. I understand what he's talking about because I went through it for just three years. And I'm certainly not saying my book is Philip Roth level, although I think it's good and I'm proud of it. Um, Then there's there's no talk of liver in there, if you people know what I mean. But um, I am going to have to start prioritizing like that again to get anything done. I have a movie idea based on the book. I've got other books. I've got a book I've been trying to write for a decade about an American writer who died in India and my search for her missing final book. It's a true story. I've got a collection of poetry I've been trying to sort of just put the finishing touches on forever. I have these songs I wrote years ago. I mean, I feel like I'm at a point in my life where, you know, I did the training at NYU I worked in newspapers for years, I've written for magazines, I've now got two books out, and I'm sort of pre like the mental decline of my old age, but post being young. And so I've got a nice run here, I think, as long as my health and, and well-being hold out mm-hmm. um, to get some stuff done. And it's a matter of prioritizing and, and doing it. And it's right now it's a challenge. Well, we can't wait to see what you write next, and uh, thanks for coming by to speak with us. I'm always happy to uh, come do stuff for NYU. You know, the school's been good to me, um, and basically I hope that I have lived up to the confidence that those people put in me at the journalism school by um, reading my 300-word application and looking at at who I was and what I'd done and and basically giving me a free ride here. Um, I hope I've lived up to that. Great. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. For more information on Alan, visit his website at www.alansalkin.com.